Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Living free. Ah, welcome to 3CR, uh, Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kHz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Hi, I'm Bill. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. This land was stolen. Sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assist with recovery in drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saved lives. Uh, today I'd like to welcome Jess and her dog Delilah to the studio. Hi Jess. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Jess is going to share her lived experience of, as a prescription drug addiction and as a peer support worker in Melbourne. Uh, Jess will also talk about the Rethink Addiction campaign that's aiming to overcome the stigma and shame associated with addiction and encourage people to seek help. So Jess, we usually start by talking about your life story, growing up, family, things that influenced you. So do you want to give us an impression of your early life? Sure, absolutely. So I um, grew up in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne um, in, I guess, what you would call a middle-class, shiny family is probably the best way to describe it. Um, so, yeah, so we were, um, so it was myself, um, my brother, and I have a half-brother and half-sister. Um, so I'm the youngest of um, of the group. Um, Mum and dad, you know, typical family, no, um, you know, no issues with divorce or anything along those lines. Um, I went to private schools and had a a relatively privileged upbringing. Yeah. Um, so, what about brothers and sisters? <clears throat> um, so my um, my eldest brother, um, you know, is, is, is there's a big difference in age. Um, so he's in he, in his fifties. Um, my sister is also in her fifties. Um, my so that's my half brother and half sister. Um, my full brother um, is uh, three years older than me. Um, so we were quite close growing up um, in age, but not necessarily close as siblings. Um, so I guess in within my family, I was kind of never quite fitting the mould of what was expected of a daughter within the family. Um, I kind of tend to look at growing up as, you know, if you look at a square box and within that square is what would be expected of a, you know, a standard family and, you know, a a typical daughter, um, I always sat outside of that square um, and generally never really felt comfortable being within it. Why do you think that was? Um, I think it's down to a number of reasons. So I think that um, it was fairly evident from a very young age. And when I think back, it, you know, I'm, by young, I mean three, four years old, that, um, you know, my, my mother and my father, um, you know, expected this little girl who'd be interested in 
wearing dresses and, you know, um, eventually wanting to you know, get your makeup done, your hair done with your mum and your nails and things like that. And what they ended up with was a girl who enjoyed playing footy, um, <laughs> liked running around with the boys, being covered in mud, um, with, you know, not quite the mould that they were expecting. Yeah. <laughs> and how did that make you feel? It didn't make me feel great. Um, I guess at the time, at a younger age, I didn't quite realise what was happening. Um, I um, I knew I didn't fit in and I did a lot of things that I guess would be classed as masking. And a lot of what I talk about in my early years is, is a lot of stuff in hindsight and it's a lot of stuff that I've discovered as I've got older. But, um, you know, when I think back now, it was I realised what was happening and that I didn't quite fit in. Um, and so in order to try and fit in, I would mask who I was to kind of fit inside that square. But then once I was in that square and kind of accepted and doing the right thing, I would then try and show my true self and that then wouldn't be accepted. And so I kind of do this to and fro back and forth and, um, generally became quite an anxious, um, you know, child, that carried on into my into my teenage years and yeah. affected me a lot socially as well. Yeah. So did it affect friendships and things? Yeah, it did. Um, I never had a lot of close friends growing up. Um, I struggled to maintain strong friendships, um, mainly because, again, I, I struggled to fit in to the normality that society maybe kind of puts on um, kids and, and young people, um, and so I never quite, um, you know, fit that mould. So I always struggled to to fit into, you know, like you see groups of girls going to parties and sleepovers and things like that. I was never involved with things like that. I was generally left out. Um, I didn't quite fit the mould hanging out with the boys because I wasn't one, um, and so I kind of sat somewhere in, in the middle. Um, I was also quite a, I guess from the anxiety of knowing that I didn't fit in, I did act out. Um, I was a very hyperactive kid. Um, I struggled with school, but not because of an intelligence issue. It was more, I struggled because I wanted to point out that I didn't quite fit in Yeah. and that that was difficult for me. Yeah. So what sort of things could you do that you enjoyed? As a child? Yeah. Um, look, I used to love riding my bike. Um, I, You know, when I say riding my bike, I mean riding my bike on a skateboard ramp and making it pretty dangerous. It was always a lot of impulsive decisions and things like that. Um, I'm very much, as a child and even today, very much a zero to 100 kind of person. So it's either all or nothing. There's nothing in between. So, you know, when I wanted to skateboard, I skateboarded hard. I was trying to do flips out of ramps. I was breaking my legs. I was, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. Um, when I wanted to play footy, I went for it. I was one of the best players that they had. 
I played inline hockey. I try and, you know, I'd push myself to kind of any sort of dangerous sport um, that I could really like throw my full effort into um, only to then 12, 13 weeks later go, can't really be bothered with this anymore. Move on to the next thing. Yeah. <sighs> yes. I think I've seen that before. Um, <clears throat> so how did, how did that impact you growing up, do you think? Um, as I got older, um, I became more self-aware of who I was as a person. Um, again, that fitting in, I did really struggle. So going through high school, and again, I, I went through private high, I actually went through private Catholic high schools, um, which I was never, ever going to fit into um, under any circumstances because of really the kind of person that I am, my learning style, um, things like that. And um, so that made things really, really tricky for me to maintain friendships. Um, and as that progressed, I guess that's when a lot of social anxiety, a bit of depression um, along those lines started to really stand out um my impulsivity and hyperactivity and lack of concentration became very obvious when I hit about 12 or 13 um Mm. and I was diagnosed with ADHD um so this was in the uh late 90s um so when ADHD specifically in in girls was very unheard of um and often not diagnosed because generally it's an inattentive type of ADHD. My ADHD was very obvious because of the hyperactivity side of things and and how impulsive I was. Yeah. Uh, so I want to go back now and talk about um, drugs and alcohol. So was there any any drugs and alcohol in your family? No. Um, no, there wasn't. So my parents, my parents would drink wine um, of an evening. So it was. A very normal thing to see they'd host um elaborate dinner parties with their friends and you know i would see people drinking um but i guess i i for me it wasn't something that influenced my reason for starting to drink um i didn't really quite understand the social aspect of it when i got to the point where i did have my first drink when, when was that? So that was when I was about 10 years old. Um, so I guess after seeing these dinner parties and stuff like that, and there was a, a liquor cabinet within my parents' living room, um, I went in there one day just to try it. Um, and there, it was a bottle of vodka. I'll never forget it. Um, and I had a mouthful and instantly this really busy mind that I'd had throughout my childhood became very quiet um, and very calm. And that was something I hadn't experienced before. Um, so did you have more than a mouthful? As the years went on, yes. <laughs> and uh, learned very quickly that filling it up with water was a great way <laughs> to hide that. Um I don't know if my parents ever realised that that ever happened. They were wine drinkers. I don't even know why they had a bottle of vodka in the house. But 
I think I finished that bottle of vodka over about three months and, um, you know, and just kind of realized that that really eased my mind and it didn't, you know, it didn't make me fit in. It just made my mind feel less busy. Yeah. A lot of people um, explain it as tightening all the loose screws so you feel at ease and comfortable. Absolutely, yeah. And I think when you, you grow up feeling uncomfortable from a very young age, um, finding something that instantly makes you feel somewhat comfortable then becomes something that you you go to. Um one thing I guess that's worth mentioning as I grew up as well is that um, I guess I always um, was told that I was a bit too much. So I was a bit too sensitive. Mm. I was too emotional. Um, I was too excited. I was just too too much is, is how I describe growing up. Um, and when I drank in that early that you know that those first sort of formative years i didn't feel like i was too much anymore because i didn't think about it mm. so when did you seriously start using alcohol um from the age of 14 um i'll i'll, I'll never forget it from what i can remember of it um i'd managed to get a packet of cigarettes somehow and someone had managed to get a six-pack of Stollies, I think that were called, back in the day. (laughs) I swapped the cigarettes for the six-pack of Stollies. I drank all six of them and blacked out. When I came around, I was... I'd barricaded myself in a cubby house um, in my friend's backyard, and my dad was trying to pull me down a slide to get me out of the cubby house while my mother walked around the party questioning every single teenager who was there about who gave their daughter alcohol, not expecting that I'd obtained it independently and completely on my own. Um, I guess blacking out at 14 was a very key indicator, a very big key indicator that things weren't going to, go in the correct direction for me when it came to drinking as I got older. Um, But blacking out was not something I knew what it was, you know, I had no idea. Um, And so I continued to black out every time I drank, Um, you know, all through my teenage years. um, It just kept happening and happening and I just considered it to be completely normal. Mm. Yeah, well, that's, I think, one of the important parts of the show is helping people to understand that what they consider to be extremely unusual is not all that unusual mm. and that if people exhibit this um, behaviour or this uh, occurrence, then you really need to take it seriously. Yeah. You do, yeah, and it wasn't until I was in my, my 30s that I actually I, I read a memoir of uh, uh, you know a, a former alcoholic who talked specifically about the blackout phenomenon and how common it is in women who drank and you know the way she described it was that your brain goes to sleep but your body still wants to party it's (laughs) you know it's not passing out it's not you know it's simply that your brain just cognitively just shuts off um but you continue almost you know 
completely fine, you know, to anyone around you. You you seem absolutely normal, but... Drunk, um, but normal. (laughs) Yeah, 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 drunk, but, but, you know, um, but, you know, absolutely nothing is coming in or out of your brain, but, you know, your body's still moving around, you're still doing things, um, and, you know, it's obviously incredibly dangerous as Mm. well, so... So what did your parents think of this? Um, So they didn't really know to the extent of how bad my drinking was. Um, I drank a lot of, at home. Um, so with my ADHD, I was, di- so I was diagnosed in, in the 90s. And back then, it was um, ADHD was a, a, an illness, a, or a mental illness as it is now, um, that you were told that you grew out of um, when you hit a certain age. So I hit 17 years old and I was told that I no longer had ADHD. And in hindsight, now I can see exactly that the second my medication and my psychology stopped for my ADHD diagnosis, my drinking expanded into a level that is really quite ridiculous um, given my age and also my size. So I was a small kid and... You know, I was quite quite skinny and, and all this, but I was putting away, you know, a bottle of wine and I at 17, 18. And as the years went on, that just got more and like it just expanded more and more. And my family, you know, I was living at home um, up until I was in my early 20s. And I don't know whether they chose not to see it or whether... You know, they they were aware, I'm not entirely sure, but, you know, I would just go for bottle after bottle after wine um, and then just pass out in my bedroom. Um, but there was never any comment or, um, you know, communication about whether that may or may not be an issue, even though it clearly, clearly was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so we might take a short break there. Um, we've got a song called uh, Lost in Your Illusion by Mark Seymour. Behind your back, 
Hi, my name's John A. Tate, and I've collected hundreds of songs about footy and sport. So we've put together a program called The Sporting Record. Hang on. It's not all about your records, John A. Em and I are also here to cast a critical 3CR eye over all things sport. Join John, James and me every Thursday at 4pm for The Sporting Record, right here on 855 3CR. Kicking off on Thursday, August 25th at 4 o'clock. Uh, this is The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Uh, if you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, then you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free <clears throat> and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. Uh, today I'm talking with Jess and we're talking about her journey with prescription drug addiction and recovery. Um, so Jess, before the break, we talked about going through a bottle of wine every night. <laughs> two, to, two to three in the end, but yeah, <laughs> yep, yep. So where did your drinking take you? And, you know, did you find any respite from it? I, um, respite's a strong word, I think, <laughs> for anything I went through during, um, during my active addiction. It's, um, look, my drinking, my drinking turned me into an extrovert, um, which, you know, I was the life of the party all through my, my early twenties. Um, I was a very high functioning, um, addict is the best way to describe it. Um, so I would walk past people on my way to work um, and see them drinking in the street and I'd be like, well, I'm not that guy, so I'm probably okay, even though I'm still drinking this severe amount. But also I'd kind of be jealous that that person was able to sit there and drink yeah. all day whilst I had to go and work. Um, in a job so it was a bit of a mix a mixed bag but I kept um you know I, I had a very high functioning life I, I traveled the world um I worked in a corporate finance job um I have the gift of the gab I think I'm able to talk myself into jobs with zero qualifications but somehow managed to kind of pick these roles up it's a skill I don't quite know where it came from but um yeah I worked in corporate finance for a while and it's funny throughout my my 20s I I knew that what I was the amount I was drinking was much more than the people around me um Mm. and the people that I had around me I now know only kept me around because I was drunker than they were so by having a drunker person, um, it made them feel better about their own drinking. Um, Probably look better as well. <laughs> it, well, yeah, absolutely. Well, you had um, Jess falling all over the floor and, you know, all over the place and they were able to stand at the bar and do whatever, then, yeah, absolutely, you, you know, you're going to feel a lot better. Um but as the years went on, I, I guess I realised with the amount I was drinking, I didn't, I still didn't think it was problematic. But I knew in the back of my mind that um, it, it, it was something I couldn't stop. Um, I didn't want to stop, and I also felt I couldn't. Um, and that sort of led me to the thought pattern that I should never touch drugs because if I did, 
I would approach drugs in exactly the same way I would approach I approach drinking. Um, and so I kept well away from anyone who took, talked, was around anybody to do with any kind of illicit substances, knowing full well that if they were put in front of me, I'd just go for it. And then that would be the point of no return yeah. for me. Yeah. So were you able to control your drinking? No, under no circumstances, no. Mm. Um, so when I was in my 20s, um, I could never have just one glass of anything. I would have to have 20, 25. Um, the amount I was able to put away is is really staggering. Um, when I look back now, it's, um, you know, it was almost a joke that I could drink everybody under the table. In the end, I was the one under the table. But, um, you know, I, there was, I had no control. And I, you know, to the point where, you know, I'd be in a restaurant with some friends and I'd, I will have drunk however much I will have drunk and they would get up and leave half a glass of wine on the table and I'd be like, how do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> like, that makes no sense to me. And so they'd turn their back to leave and I would then pick up those glasses and drink them because I couldn't understand how someone, the concept of somebody just being able to have a drink and leave half of it there because they didn't want it. I didn't think that was... It made no sense to me. Um, so really, yeah, I had I had zero control. Um, and I was an insufferable drunk. I was a liability. Um, like I spoke about earlier, I, I would black out. I would wake up in gardens. I would wake up in parks. I woke up in different cities, um, you know, with zero recollection of how I got there and you know, and some of the trauma that goes along with um, with active addiction is, is uh, you know, some of the things that happen to you during it. And I say to people that, you know, things like consent um, is a very blurry line, um, especially when you're, you're a woman with an alcohol or drug problem. Um, and, you know, and they're the kind of things that I have to work through um, today, um, you know, in order to kind of process those things that um, may have happened to me in the past. Yeah. Um, so did you, were you able to stop drinking? Eventually, yes, but that was at the introduction of drugs. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, so so do, you want, do you want to talk about that then? The this is where it gets fun, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I mean fun in a very, um, you know, not a very nice manner. So when I was about 26, 27 years old, um, uh, I was, I wouldn't say pressured. I guess pressured isn't the right word. Um, but drugs were introduced to me in the conversation of you are such an irritating drunk, you need to take these lines of cocaine in order to sober up so that we can deal with you. And being in that position where I kind of revert back to being that little girl who didn't fit in, didn't quite, you know, have a lot of friends and not wanting to lose this group of friends that I did have, I did those drugs and I was okay. I could be drunk. I could be drunk and I could function. So I started to find this weird balance in that, okay, well, I can take these drugs and I can continue drinking to the levels that I am. And actually 
I'm okay and I'm not a, an annoying person. People are happy to be around me. I didn't realise at that point just how dangerous the combination of drinking and stimulant use, um, you know, in, in the excess that I was using it was for my health. You know, the mix of a depressant, I guess an upper and a downer, just throws your body into a, a state that really can't be described. But the blackouts would then become a lot more severe and I would almost remember them. So like things were happening and I was aware that they were happening, but I couldn't control what was happening um, because I was still drunk, but I was also quite oh, high at, yeah. the, at the same time. Um, so the point at which I stopped drinking um, was October 1st, 2014. Um I woke up, so basically the cocaine habit and the drinking had got to a point where I was spending such an excessive amount of money per week that I couldn't fund it. So I took out loans and it almost became like a game. I would take out loan after loan after loan and I would keep getting approved and I couldn't understand why. And then on October 1st, 2014, all these repayments came out of my bank account and I couldn't pay my rent. I couldn't mm -hmm. pay for food. Most importantly to me at that moment was that I also couldn't pay for drugs. Um, and I fell into a heap on my uh, on my living room floor in a full-blown panic attack, having no clue how I was going to get out of that situation. Um, and at that point, that was when I stopped and that was when I went, okay, you need to stop immediately because you've now ruined your life. That was how I saw it. Um, at that time, again, in hindsight, I now realise how incredibly dangerous that was um, to stop drinking and using drugs with zero medical help, zero support system. I could have had a seizure and died and I had no idea that that could have happened. Um, but somehow I survived it. Um, and I guess for the next three and a half years, I white knuckled my sobriety. Um, it's probably the best way to describe it. Um, and in those three and a half years, um, you know, my life did get better. I, I got married. I, um, did well at my job. I built some new friendship groups but what I didn't do was actually address any of the problems that were happening in my mind. Then I became more anxious and I became more depressed and I became impatient. I became paranoid. Um, you know, I, I had these kind of thoughts that people were trying to make me lose my job, that I didn't quite fit in. All those thoughts that I had, you know, as a child started to come back to me. Um, and then it's, you know, that three and a half year point, it took a very simple disagreement at work for me to snap and walk straight to a bottle shop and buy that bottle of vodka, that one I had when I was 10 years old and drink the entire thing. Um, and then I disappeared for four days, um, on a bender.
Mm. So, so I guess that affected your job? Um, it actually didn't. <laughs> Ironically, no, it didn't. Um, so they had no idea about the relapse. Um, so they were aware that I'd had an alcohol problem. They weren't aware of the drug problem. I'd kept the drug problem fairly quiet. Um, but the alcohol problem, they were very much aware of. It was fairly obvious. Um, but... When I did relapse and I came back from that bender, um, I was taken straight to um, a GP, um, to a doctor, who could see how anxious I was and immediately prescribed me um, 20 diazepam tablets um, to take and ease the anxiety and the panic that I was going through. When I took those tablets that quietness that I had when I was 10 years old drinking that vodka for the first time came back again Mm. and I took all 20 tablets and then I went back a few days later and said I'd lost my script and they gave me a new script and I got another 20 tablets and I took all of those and then, you know, that's when the prescription drug abuse began and continued for a number of years. So how hard was it to keep on getting more? Um, look, when you're an addict, you can do anything. <laughs> you know, there is, you know, if you want to find drugs, you can find them. So I was, I was doctor shopping. Um, so I would go to different, um, different doctors around um, the area I was living in. Um, I would go to doctors outside of the area I was living in. Eventually, I realized that this was becoming, you know, a bit tiresome having to move around so much. Um, So I Googled it and I realized that I could just order these drugs online. Yeah, right. Um, And within three days, I had 200 tablets of benzodiazepines, of a mix of diazepam and Xanax. And all of a sudden, my whole world opened up and it was very easy to access them without having to go through any medical intervention. Wow. Mm. That's amazing. Also, we might take another short break there. Um, We've got another song. This one's called All My Love, Ella by Michael Spivey.
Center for Performing Arts and Monica Singh Sangwan present a year-long season of solo and group Odyssey dance performances on Saturday, September 17th and 24th at Dance House and October 1st at Fairfield Amphitheatre. All shows will be accompanied by our live Odyssey music ensemble. Odyssey is an Indian classical dance style that is both traditional and contemporary in its intrinsic nature. Join us for what can only be described as a pilgrimage where the dancer and musicians merge together as co-performers. Tickets available via our website, sohamasmi.org. This project has been financially supported by Regional Arts Victoria and Creative Victoria. We also acknowledge Dance House, Multicultural Arts Victoria and 3CR Community Radio as supporters in this endeavour. Shindig, every Sunday here at 3CR from 6 to 7pm. Join me, Holly for your one hour of 1960s tracks and inspired sounds. Uh, hi, welcome back. Um, I'm talking with Jess and we're talking about prescription drug addiction and her recovery experience. Um, so just before the break, uh, we were talking about uh, doctor shopping, accumulating lots of uh, lots of drugs. Um, so I think we know where that all goes. So what was the thing that caused you to look for help to stop that? Um, so the benzodiazepines I was accessing over the internet um, were clearly not actual benzodiazepines <laughs> um, and That's they lucky. did, yeah, so, you know, two and two together. Um, so I overdosed, began to overdose a number of times as a result of that um, and I was told by the hospital um, after they tested pills that they found on me that a majority of them were laced with things like fentanyl and novelty benzodiazepines and it became fairly evident that if I didn't start to seek help that, um, you know, I wasn't going to be alive much longer. The catalyst for that was um, at the start of the pandemic um, back in 2020. So at that point I'd, I'd lost my career. Um, I'd lost a job following that. Um, the job I then started had got cancelled because of the pandemic 
and I was found myself in a situation where um, I had no money. I'd sold everything that I owned in order to buy drugs. Um, and I was at the point where I was starting to become someone I, I didn't recognize anymore. Um, one thing I guess I've always been very proud of is that I was always a very nice person whilst I was using drugs mm. and drinking. I was never angry. I was never, um, you know, there were things I did that weren't right, but I was never an awful person. Um, but I was becoming mm. an awful person. I was walking past cars, looking at how I could rob them. I was walking past people working out how I could get more money for drugs. And one day um, in April, I was sat on my kitchen floor just in the state at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I just knew that if I didn't stop, I was going to die. And either I was going to die from an overdose or I was going to die from the amount of money that I owed various dealers around my area. It was going to be one or the other. Um, so I reached out to my estranged family for help. Um, I said to them that if I didn't come home um, to Melbourne, now at this time I was living in England, um, I said if I don't come home to Melbourne, I'm going to die and I need you to help me do that. Um, and to their credit, they did get me home. Um, mm. I detoxed in hotel quarantine Um which, whilst very comfortable, was very horrific um, and consisted of the mental health team banging on my door four times a day, just making sure I was still alive. There was no alcohol and other drug support. There was no counselling. There was no um, medical support in any way. Um, When I came out of hotel quarantine, my plan was to go into rehab um, because that was the only option I felt that I had. But something was ticking in the back of my mind that made me think that I should look at my life from a psychiatric point of view um, because I felt like something wasn't quite right there and that if I didn't address my mental health, then I didn't think I could maintain any kind of recovery regardless of what program, rehab, anything I went through. I was very lucky to find a psychiatrist who saw through my addictions, um, which is very rare, unfortunately. Um, This psychiatrist explained to me that my use of stimulants was as a result of my ADHD that had continued throughout adulthood. Um, He described to me that these episodes of paranoia, noises in my mind, was because I was suffering from bipolar affective disorder, um, type 1. Um, and he explained to me that I also had complex post-traumatic stress disorder um, from a number of things of that had happened through addiction, um, but also that had happened in my childhood as well that I had to work through. Um, through his assistance um and being medicated correctly which you know took a bit of touch and go over time um my life became very stable and manageable um I didn't work for eight or nine months because I didn't feel I was ready um but 
by the time it hit, I think it was about November, December that year. Honestly, I was bored. I like walk. I like working, so I was bored. Um, and I took a job as a traffic controller. Um, yeah. yeah. So I basically judged people's driving for you know a year and a half, and it was a good job for me because it wasn't stressful. It was fairly easy um there wasn't a lot of responsibility apart from making sure people didn't crash their cars but um you know it was what I needed to kind of ease me back into that form of you know normality that I hadn't had for such a long time Mm. um after working through um that job for a year and a half um I started to see these lived experience peer worker jobs start to appear um, this year. Um, And I felt confident enough in my recovery and my mental health that I was ready to start helping other people and that by helping other people, I would also be helping myself. So in the middle of the night, one night, I started to apply for jobs. Um, I was lucky enough to obtain one. Um, and working as a peer worker with people with alcohol and other drug issues has enabled me to use a really dark part of my life to be able to assist others and know that they aren't alone. The biggest part of my recovery or I guess what's helped my recovery is learning other people's stories and knowing that I wasn't the only one going through what I was going through because when you are in active addiction it's very lonely and if you aren't aware of other people and what they're they have been through then you it's very easy to assume that you are the only one and that you are the only person who has a problem and therefore you can't be fixed. And that's where stigma comes in. You have a lot of stigma around yourself. You have a lot of stigma coming from the public as well. Um, so, you know, when I started to hear other people's stories, I knew how much that benefited me and that made me want to become someone who could help other people. And I'm lucky enough to have that job today mm. where I can help people, you know, know that that, that, mm. that they aren't alone. Yeah. And I guess the other thing that touches on is the, the Rethink Addiction um, initiative. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So the Rethink Addiction campaign, I feel very, very fortunate to be a part of. Um, so the campaign itself is about looking at the person and who they are beyond their addiction um so you know it's like it's like knowing that you're more than your problem with alcohol you're more than your problem with drugs behind those issues is a person who has passions and connections to things that are really important um so for me um my passion is is rescuing animals and that's why I have my, my giant pony dog here with me today is because, you know, I resonate a lot with rescuing animals because showing them that loving connection 
is something that I never had. And by giving them that loving connection, you can see how they grow. And it's no different to someone in addiction who is shown love and connection and positivity because then they're able to grow as well. And that's the very essence of the campaign is showing that people's passions are what can um, allow them to move forward um, and, and recover successfully. Um, the campaign itself is is really about removing that stigma and stigma is a huge barrier to people getting treatment. The way that the world looks at drug use, the way Australia looks at drug use is very problematic um, and it stops people being able to get help. And as a result of that, people are dying um, by starting to have the conversation around removing stigma and allowing people to access help we're able to save lives and so this campaign is incredibly important not just for the Australian public it's important for me as a person because stigma has followed me my entire life it prevented me getting help Um, once I overcame that stigma my life became better and I hate to think of the fact that people can't get help because stigma sits as a barrier in the way of them getting that help. Yeah, it also affects the families as well. You know, the same thing, feeling guilt and shame about somebody who is a drug user or an alcoholic. They don't seek help either. So it's it helps everybody to reduce the stigma. Yeah. 100%. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, families who, my own included, um, you know, my, my family refuses to um, acknowledge the issues I've had with drugs and alcohol. And as a result of that, um, they're no longer part of my life because I found that a triggering circumstance for my own recovery. Um, and I actively encourage families of people who I help to go and get help because their journey, I guess you've got someone who's in active addiction who has their own journey to recovery. Outside of that, you've got their friend's journey, you've got their sibling's journey, their parent's journey. And if those people don't get their support as well and overcome their stigma, then things don't get better. No. (laughs) They they just don't. So. And plus it doesn't help people to share their experience if there's not someone else out there who's had that a similar experience yeah 100% and that's why I am very very loud and proud about my own journey I don't have any shame around what I've been through because I know that people are going through or have been through what I've been through or worse yeah or worse yeah, yeah 100% yeah. yeah yeah absolutely they've been through worse um and, you know, just knowing that somebody else can um, get through that and lead a life that's not problematic anymore around addiction um, can be really inspiring. Yeah, so, agreed. Yeah. Mm. Um, if anybody would like to find out more about Rethink Addiction and the campaign, uh, then you can go online at rethinkaddiction.org.au and check out. Uh, there's also a video of Jess and others um, that are trying to break down the stigma and shame around addiction. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Jess and her dog, Delilah, for sharing about her prescription drug addiction, her recovery and her experience as a peer support worker. Thanks, Jess. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll feature Ange from Gamblers Anonymous, sharing her experience as a compulsive gambler and overcoming her gambling addiction. Coming up next, uh, we've got Balanoir, the spirit of Wah, 
hosted by Uncle Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco in the spirit of Wa on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.